Emancipation from Radical Emancipation Remarks by Gil Bailey at the 2011 Conference of the Center for Ethics and Culture at Notre Dame Produced by the Cornerstone Forum Ron has poor eyesight and I'm losing my voice If Father Michael would just go deaf we could be the three monkeys, you know <laughs> well, we'll see if I can make it through the paper. Uh, by the way, enjoy the levity. That's the last you'll get. <laughs> Archaic religion, the emergence of which marks the birth of culture itself, was born of the transfiguration of violence into religious awe and holy dread, the moral effect of which was to erase the truth about the victim on whom the violence of the community fell. Our most ancient ancestors, in other words, prevented violence precisely by preventing it onto expendable victims and then ritually reproducing the spontaneous catharsis that accompanied the original violence, thereby rejuvenating the social solidarity it produced. I apologize for the crypticness of that. As the pre-Socratic philosopher Heraclitus cryptically observed, quote, strife, polemos, violence, is the father and king of all things. Everything originates in strife, end quote. Strife, Heraclitus goes on to say, quote, has shown some to be gods and some mortals. He has made some slaves and others free, end quote. That is to say, the violent crisis that our ancestors resolved at the expense of the victim on whom the violence arbitrarily fell gave rise to an array of social distinction which thereafter served to diffuse and suppress the mimetic rivalry that would otherwise have precipitously led to a new round of violence. The paramount distinction on which all other distinctions were predicated was the distinction between the sacred and the profane, the gods or demigods and the mortals in Heraclitus's mythological formulation. The maintenance of this most essential distinction was the religious preoccupation of the pr primitive world. The decisive expose of the violence that, as Heraclitus saw, gave rise to the distinction between the sacred and the profane was the crucifixion of Christ, about which St. Paul said that if the powers of this world had only known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The synoptic evangelist underscored the religious upheaval for which the crucifixion was the harbinger by noting that Jesus' death coincided with the rending of the curtain that served to protect the inner sanctum of the temple, the Holy of Holies, from contact with the profane outer precincts. By conflating Christ's death with the breaching of the barrier between the sacred and the profane, the source on which the synoptic evangelist drew recognized with uncanny perspicacity the effect the Christian revelation would have on the ancient structures of sacrality upon which humans had relied since the foundation of the world. Many recognized how uniquely hospitable to the emergence of a legitimate secularity Christianity became but it fell to René Girard to provide a detailed anthropological analysis of just how historically pivotal Christianity has been in this regard and how radical have been its consequences. 
few of Girard's predecessors saw these things as perceptively as his fellow Catholic and fellow countryman, the theologian Henri de Lubac. Girard supplies the anthropological lens through which de Lubac's insights come more clearly into focus. Quote, the church is in the world, de Lubac wrote in The Splendor of the Church, and by the effect of her presence alone, she communicates to it an unrest which cannot be soothed away. She, the church, is a perpetual witness of Christ who came to shake human life to its foundations, as Guardini puts it. I'm still quoting de Lubac. And it is a fact that she appears in the world as a great ferment of discord. There is no disguising this point. It is essential. Hansers von Balthasar also recognized both Christianity's decisive role in preparing for the legitimate secularity and the latter's need for the former if it is not to spin off into a, the kind of incoherence this conference was organized to address. Quote, quoting von Balthasar, the secularization that characterizes world history, which began to set in at the same time as Christ appeared, creating a new period in history, is not some neutral phenomenon that can be regarded as progress or development. Ultimately, it is encompassed by and taken into the service of that theodramatic world decision that was provoked and triggered by Jesus, end quote. One could get a feel for the theodramatic world decision from four statements by Jesus in the New Testament. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Who do you say that I am? Those who do not gather with me will be scattered. And decisive for understanding post-Christian nihilism, without me, you can do nothing. St. Paul's insistence that Christ had broken down the wall separating Jews from Gentiles is cognate with the synoptic allusion to the tearing away of the barrier between the sacred and the profane. And its historical ramifications are likewise still with us. Even when, quote, taking post-Christian history into account, writes Hansers von Balthasar, the greatest distinction in world history is that between the Jews and the Gentiles, end quote. Christians for whom the separating wall between Jew and Gentile had been shattered by the revelation of the cross set to work in short order on the considerable task of reconciling Athens and Jerusalem, a spiritual and intellectual labor that its setbacks and dead ends notwithstanding has borne much fruit. Nevertheless, the Christian insistence that the wall between them had been overcome by the cross of Christ met with equally rigorous, if slightly varied, forms of rejection by the Jews and the Gentiles themselves. If the cross, and therefore Christianity, had been a scandal to the Jews and sheer folly to the Gentiles, this remained the case for the anthropologies they represented. The Jewish dedication to law, the Torah, adherence to God's strict commands, had as its foil the idolatry, polymorphism, polytheism, and perceived moral laxity of the Gentile world. If the Jerusalem temple was the quintessential emblem of Jewish existence, for the Gentiles it was the Athenian Parthenon, the monument, a monument to its religious individualism and a quintessential cafeteria paganism. 
In these monuments, law and liberty, Torah and tolerance, stood facing each other in scornful mutual repudiation. The wall held firm. In such a world, the best one could hope for was an uneasy and unstable rapprochement between order and freedom, their antithesis symbolized by the wall separating Jew and Gentile, to the disappearance of which Christians were meanwhile obliged to accommodate. The Christian revelation rendered the Jew-Gentile distinction passe, not by denying Jewish particularity, but by extending it by adoption in Christ to the whole world. For as von Balthasar insisted, quote, Israel alone among all the nations is, at the present tense verb, is the abiding bearer of an absolute hope that is identical with its existence, end quote. But even as Israel's prophets, Jeremiah, excuse me, Isaiah prominently among them, foresaw, Israel's election, enduring though it was and is, exists for the sake of the whole world. Christ and his church being the instrument of that universal dispensation. Had the setting aside of the separation between Jew and Gentile been a relatively straightforward affair, it would not have required the crucifixion of the Lord of glory. And for those who could not or would not, to use a T.S. Eliot trope, find the hanged man in either the Torah or the tarot deck, the war between the archetypally Jewish and the Gentile renunciations of the Christian proposal would become the proxy war for all ages. The interminable struggle between order and freedom, history's grand and garish melodrama, which for all of its pathos and blood and tears is a shabby sideshow, a blood and circuses distraction from the real drama of life and of post-Paschal history what von Balthasar calls the theodrama, and which he limbs as the reciprocal intensification of the yes and the no to Christ. The no to Christ, von Balthasar argues, and the ongoing attempt to expel Christianity continues to break down along a subtle but discernible Jew-Gentile divide, no longer construed either ethnically or in confessional terms, but traceable nonetheless to their respective paradigmatic anthropology. For von Balthasar, the effective, quote, the effective challenge comes from a secularized Israel, end quote. For if the hope with which Israel is synonymous is, quoting von Balthasar again, consistently followed through and lived out side by side with the rejection of Christ, it must seek to offer a counter vision of world history, end quote. Unlike the early Christians whose disappointed expectation of an imminent eschaton was relatively shrugged off without damage to their eschatological hope, secularized Israel, that, quote, abiding bearer of an absolute hope, eventually, in Eric Vogelin's formulation, imminentized its eschatological hope, selling its birthright for a stew of messianic hopes deemed achievable in history if pursued with the requisite single-mindedness. The Gentile impulse, on the other hand, is ahistorical, a return to a cosmic miasma, a shrugging relativism and indifference, what René Girard calls the crisis of undifferentiation, 
or to be more journalistically precise, postmodern, post-Christian, multicultural tolerance even of intolerance and moral condemnation of moral condemnation. Faint echoes of the Jew-Gentile dialectic show up in Western history, for instance, with the figures of Marx and Nietzsche. Marx representing the transmutation of the Abrahamic promise into the dream of a political order to be brought about by disorder, an omelet made of broken eggs, justice achieved by breaking shop windows, freedom a la Rousseau imposed by dictatorship. Nietzsche, on the other hand, was the spokesman for the eradication of biblical thought and a clarion voice calling for the return to the sacrificial regimes of pagan antiquity, a champion of the triumph of the will and the unapologetic swagger of the ubermensch. By now these misshapen ideologies have coupled and begotten even more grotesque and dangerous offspring, each as initially naive as it is ultimately nihilistic. The driveful order in history will forever encounter the equal but seemingly opposite desire for emancipation from that order on the grounds that it impinges on human freedom. Even when each of these drives is radicalized, as each tends to be once cut off from the source, which alone can reconcile them, the former produces an increasingly intrusive state, while the latter, scandalized by the state's intrusion, rebels against all constraints. One produces tyranny, the other the social and moral anarchy to which tyranny eventually seems a preferable alternative. Aside from this insatiable dialectic, that's von Balthasar's term, the melodramatic wrestling match between order degenerating into state power and freedom degenerating into anarchy can itself become an even more ominous embrace of the two. What Paul in Second Thessalonians calls the mystery of lawlessness is that the moral anarchy to which the power of the state is the only sane response can, if a suitable common enemy can be found, collaborate with the state to enforce its antinomian project. We can see this today, for, in, for instance, in the state's determination to indoctrinate children into the most absurd libertine doctrines, teaching them in the process that their parents are woefully in need of moral re-education. The law becomes the enforcer of moral lawlessness. This is the mystery of lawlessness, lawlessness enforced by the absolute state. What has made it possible for the insatiable dialectic of absolute law and absolute liberty to collude with each other in this perverse way? It is, I would argue, their mutual determination to be freed of the Christian provocation. If nothing short of the crucifixion of the Lord of Glory brought down the wall separating Jew and Gentile, the symbiosis of law and lawlessness in the contemporary West can only be explained as the latest form of the world's no to Christ. The rallying cry of radical emancipation is precisely a radical and radically erroneous concept of emancipation. We in our time desperately need to be emancipated from the liberationist emancipatory paradigm that has turned us all into rebels without a cause. This mindless background assumption 
left over from the Enlightenment and the French Revolution should be renounced precisely in order to turn with renewed energy to the issue of freedom. The challenge posed by radical secularity, as von Balthasar correctly insists, has to be joined on the issue of freedom. Quoting von Balthasar, as opposed to those whose search for freedom urges them onwards into a barren void, the Christian stands as the messenger of a freedom accomplished and a freedom attainable by all. Secular and biblical anthropology join issue over the nature, meaning, and scope of this freedom, for as St. Paul never tired of insisting, we have been set free for freedom. Quote, where can freedom find its own norm, wrote Hunters von Balthasar, if it is not to wander off in empty arbitrariness, thus threatening everyone else's freedom, end quote. Freedom finding its own norm. Von Balthasar was prescient in recognizing that history's interminable war between order and freedom was the outworking under whatever contemporary justifications might be found of the old contest between Jew and Gentile, neither disposed to realize that, as von Balthasar put it, quote, law must prove obsolete in the person who fulfills it from within out of love of Christ, and freedom must hand itself over as a prisoner to Christ so that it can now truly receive itself back from him. That's the take-home quote. That's the center of this paper. If that's wrong, the whole thing collapses. I'll repeat it to you. Law must prove itself obsolete in the person who fulfills it from within out of the love of Christ. Freedom must hand itself over as a prisoner to Christ so that it can now truly receive itself back from him. We are free. We have been set free. But like the Galatians of old, we tend either to mistake the gift of freedom and squander it or beg off the responsibilities that attend it and live within whatever worldly horizons the spirit of the age might enshrine. But both creation itself and we, the only creatures endowed with freedom, inhabit a drama that is scripted. We live by the law of freedom, as the letter of James puts it. The drama in which we live has a script a form, a gestalt, a logos, and that script took flesh in Christ. His disciples produced a transcript, which we rightly regard with singular, as singularly precious. But our hearts or souls or consciences, take your pick, are inscribed by our Creator with the logos in whose image and likeness we are made. Finite freedom, von Balthasar wrote, has a whence and a whither. Quoting von Balthasar, by its very nature, it is set upon a path, freedom is set upon a path and pointed in a direction. Infinite freedom, that's God, infinite freedom provides it with a law and instruction, not imposed externally, but inscribed within there is a it, the, the, the drama has a script a logos 
incarnate in Christ. And that script is inscribed on our hearts, our souls, our consciences. Finite freedom, von Balzac goes on to say, finite freedom, genuinely set free and equipped with its own sphere of freedom, cannot set off in just any direction, but must pursue a path of self-realization that is toward absolute freedom, God. End quote. This interior inscription, quickened by the voice of Christ and those who live to amplify that voice, summons us to take our unique place in what von Balazar calls, quote, the normative drama of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. That's the drama into which we uh, are invited to take a part. What is the normative drama, and how do we enter into it? Throughout the ministry of Jesus, he tried to prepare his closest disciples for the wrenching transformation of reality that lay ahead, promising, I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. Jesus repeatedly tried to prepare his disciples for the new order in which they would be asked to live and die by explicitly transforming the sacred into the sacramental. Tellingly, these efforts were often enormously unsettling to his disciples, no less than to the crowd. For they seemed to violate in one way or another the paramount distinctions between the sacred and the profane, or between Jew and Gentile, or between Sabbath and the rest of the week. In the evangelist John's account of Jesus' bread of life discourse, Jesus insists, quote, Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will not have, you have no life in you. The Greek verb in this sentence is not the typical ver- word for eating. It means rather to gnaw. Hardly a term designed to soften the impact of an already deeply offensive suggestion. <clears throat> in the Johannine Last Supper, it was the impulsive and outspoken Peter who resisted Jesus' Eucharistic gesture, following up on Father Michael's uh, emphasis on gesture, Jesus' Eucharistic gesture of washing the feet of his disciples. It was, of course, Peter who ever and again had the temerity to raise objection to what he vaguely sensed was destined to throw the world he knew into chaos. Remember, his rebuke to Jesus at Caesarea Philippi when Jesus told of his passion and death, and his post-Easter shock at the idea of violating Jewish dietary laws. Why these reactions, and why his vehement objection to Jesus washing his feet? Von Balthazar answers, quote, because this means the collapse of the total religious order of values of the natural man. God is above, man is below. The saint is above, the sinner below. It is not enough to accuse Peter here of obstinacy and blindness. It is the homo religiosus who speaks or shouts out of him. The answer is, if, you do, if I do not wash you, you have no fellowship with me. Von Balsar goes on. On one side stands the world's order of things and on the other, fellowship with Jesus. In closing, let's return to the rending of the temple veil. 
John the Evangelist provides a crucial corollary. Recounting the events just after Jesus' death, he tells us that Jews anxious that the three men executed on Golgotha be buried before the Sabbath asked Pilate to hasten their death by breaking their leg. But since Jesus has already died, the soldiers thrust a lance into his side, quote, and immediately blood and water flowed out. As a parallel to the rending of the temple curtain, this little detail has enormous implications. As the first Christians were remarkably quick to, to recognize. Very early in the recounting of the events of Golgotha, the water and blood flowing from the side of Christ were seen to refer to the quintessential sacraments of baptism and the Eucharist, respectively. These juxtaposing allusions to the desacralizing effect of the gospel and the sacramental commingling of the sacred and the profane, summoning each to a new dignity, acquits Christianity of the charge of Nietzsche and many others that it is responsible not for making radical secularism possible, which it did, but for making it inevitable, which it most certainly did not. These changes fail to these charges fail to recognize the sacramental alternative to the primitive sacred, which is at the center of the lived life of Catholic Christianity. Just as the source of the desacralizing is the passion of Christ, so likewise is the source of the sacramentality, which alone retrieves all that is essential in the old sacrificial system while dispensing with the superstition and the violence. As the temple veil was rent in two, the blood and water of sacramental life that would replace the doomed temple was flowing from the side of Christ. Christianity, writes Claude Jeffrey, is itself at the origin of a new sacredness. This is why it is better to say that Christianity brought about a metamorphosis rather than a withering away of the sacred, end quote. The Eucharistic liturgy is the definitive drama of world history, and participation in it is at the same time a dress rehearsal by which the faithful withdraw from whatever unworthy melodrama in which they might be caught up and listen for a cue, the call that will give ever more specificity to their vocation as disciples of Christ. It is here in the Eucharist that they, the faithful, we are exposed to the overall dramatic architecture, the Trinitarian and therefore Paschal structure of reality itself. It is here that we can begin to discern our own role and carry it out in the knowledge that the world's ignorance of and contempt for the Christocentric theodrama simply means that it is and always will be an extension of the Paschal drama in which every actor will necessarily need a martyr's spirit. The true meaning of life is the drama of Christ, whose cross, resurrection, and presence in the church in history has a place for each of us. As we find our ecclesial mission within the larger drama, and to that extent, 
we will become persons in the full theological sense of that word. And then we can perform our modest role in that drama, confident that in doing so, as the poet Robert J. Fink puts it, we will be doing what we do as if each story were being written down somewhere in red letters. God bless you. Thank you very much. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.